We're in the visions of God's victory. And if last week was one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, the marriage supper of the Lamb, this morning we're probably going to cover one of the most encouraging, at least for me. In this section, we're going to go from John hearing about these visions that God's given him. Remember, it was words of triumph, what God was saying. So God explained what was going to happen. Now we actually get to seeing what's going to happen through these visions. There are seven visions in this section. It starts off this morning with the rider on the white horse. We're going to cover that today. And then over the next few weeks, we're going to cover the rest. It's going to, the next one is the Supper of God. It's not the kind of supper you ever want to go to, just so we're clear. It's not the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the marriage supper of those that aren't actually part of the Lamb. It's quite a hectic event. We're going to look at the destruction of the beast of the sea, the beast of the land, the false prophet, false religion, as well as all the kings of the earth. Those people that think they're so important and can do everything, right? They're going to be destroyed. We're going to look at Satan being bound. We're going to look at him being bound with huge, ginormous chains. And we're going to understand what that means. We're going to look at the destruction of Satan after that and the martyrs that have all died for their faith being raised up. We're going to look at the final judgment in the book of Revelation, the last one. Can I hear an amen? Amen. No more judgment. That'll be it. Once that's done, it's finished. And then lastly, we get to start a new section, and that'll be uh, sort of leading us into section 8, which is a vision of the new creation. All of these visions that I've just mentioned are super powerful. They're all, in their own ways, are going to instill in us moments of celebration. But I also do want to say this. This section that we're going into now in Revelation is probably the section where interpretation of Revelation becomes quite a big thing. What I mean by that is this is where a lot of interpretations start to go their own separate routes. And so I'm saying that to you because it can be quite controversial. But I do want to remind us of something before I start. Having different views on end time theology is okay. As long as we agree on the principles. Jesus is coming back, that's for sure. He is God, 100%. There is no doubt about it, right? We are going to go to heaven and we will enjoy the new heaven and the new earth. And God is victorious. Those are the fundamental things we have to agree on. The rest of the stuff in terms of timings and dates... We can agree to disagree, and we can have fun about it. So please, no throwing stones today, no throwing rocks, Mark. Instead, let's just learn together. I do want to say this book was never intended to divide us. This book is not about dividing the church. It's not about separating us into different camps. That's not what God does. This book is to encourage God's people. In fact, what we notice throughout the book is that this book is an encouragement to the church. It's not one that should ever fill us with fear, anxiety, or doubt. Amen? Good. So we know at the beginning of Revelation, it started with something, and I want to remind us of this as we go through it. Revelation 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this testimony, of this prophecy out loud, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written, because the time is near. That's what we're going to hold on to this morning and through the rest of the section. This book contains a blessing for us. As we unpack it, as we wrestle with Scripture together, we are actually partaking with God in doing that, and He's going to release a blessing in our lives. And so let me set them some things up just in terms of the way I interpret Revelation and in terms of how you will start to see some of the things play out in this next section. Last section, we covered the destruction of Babylon, right? How Babylon was going to be destroyed. What I do want to say to you is the destruction of Babylon, because it happened in the last section, does not necessarily mean that anything that we read about in this section can only come after Babylon's destroyed. In other, words, in other words, that's a process. It's undergoing. God is bringing the systems of this world to its knees. And so some of the stuff we read could be happening and might even happen at some point concurrently to what we discovered last week. 
In fact, I also want to say this, the binding of Satan, because we're going to hear about that, is not necessarily something, I believe, that is allocated or reserved for some distant moment in the future, because what we'll notice is Satan has already, in some sense, been bound. The second thing I want to remind us of is that, and it's what's clear, is that throughout the book of Revelation, there's one consistent theme. The consistent theme in the book of Revelation is that it's always been God's intention to destroy Satan and his allies, right? From the beginning of the book, right way through to the end, that theme follows through the entire book. And so let's remember that if we're going to remember something. Thirdly, from Revelation 17 verse 1, which was the last section we covered, the words of triumph. Sorry, I'm speaking really fast because Charlie's got me under time pressure. The emphasis shifted and was focusing on the church's victory in God's victory, right? The church is rising up. The systems of this world are falling. God's people are starting to take their place. As the world is spiraling out of control, the kingdom of God, the church is rising up. All of the people of God are getting closer to God while everybody else moves further and further away. And what I want to say is that in this section, we're going to get to some visions that are going to take us forward in time. And there are also going to be some visions that are going to take us back in time. But the key point to remember is that all of these visions happen between the ascension of Christ and his second coming. These are all dealing with the gospel age. And then lastly, and I want to use this illustration that you know quite well because you've heard me say it before. As we read Revelation, it's important that we don't look at all of these distinct sections and the subsections within the sections as separate events. What's important is that we look at this picture as a whole. We're looking at one story. The God, the God of the universe's plan to bring humanity back to him, to restore creation, to redeem mankind, to operate in the new kingdom and the new heaven and the new earth that will one day come. And we're seeing it from different points of a spiral. Another way of saying that, it's like we have been going around a spiral staircase all along. And every time you get onto a new flight of that spiral staircase, you inevitably end up high in the picture. This section is going to take us to the top of the staircase. And what we'll see from that vantage point is the entirety of God's plan. And more importantly, that it will come together. Amen? Amen. Cool. Now we can start. Right. Woo! So... This morning's section is titled The Conquering King. Please turn with me to Revelation 19. We're going to read from verse 11 this morning onwards. But let's pray first. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you that this word is an encouragement to us. It reminds us of our victory as we prayed for fear to be broken this morning in people's life. I pray that that would happen as we discover you, Jesus, our conquering King, ruling and reigning, Lord, where you've always been. And we celebrate that fact this morning. Let these words be life to us and let your spirit be with us today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 Verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. I want to pause there. Because we notice that heaven's been opened again. Does that remind you of something else that happened in the book of Revelation? Another book, yeah. When, the, when John moves from the seven churches into the seven seals, he goes from the island of Patmos having this uh, letters to the churches being dictated to him. All of a sudden it says, And then I saw and heaven was opened and there was a sound from heaven inviting John up into heaven. Whether he left earth in his physical form, where he, whether he teleported to heaven, or whether he went there in a dreamlike state, no one's really certain. But what we do know is John was invited into heaven. And so something's happening here again that's quite similar. And it's a great indication that the picture 
is shifted. There's a new vision that John is about to see. What's more is it's not just John going to heaven that's similar to the seven seals, but he also notices something. He notices a white horse. Let me remind you of what Revelation 6.2 says. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And so what we have to ask ourselves the question is, is the rider that we encounter in the seven seals, is he the same as the rider that we encounter now in Revelations 19 verse 11? For us to understand that, we have to continue reading the verse. It says, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. This is from Revelations 19. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. I personally believe that both the rider in the seven seals and the rider we encounter in Revelations is one and the same person. Why? Because these people are both righteous. The white clothing, the white horse that the first rider had is now translated into righteousness into this text. Both are clearly carrying weapons. Both of them carry authority. And what's more is we'll discover that the purpose of both these riders is fundamentally the same. In the seven seals... The rider came to conquer and conquering. Now in Revelations 19, it says the rider comes to judge and to make war. I don't know about you, but to me, those two sound awfully familiar. And what it tells us and what it communicates is that the rider is continuing to do what he has always been doing. This is not a new phase of the evolution. He is a conquering king. He was a conquering king, and he forever will be the conquering king. And that brings us to our first truth for this morning. And the truth is this. We can be encouraged because Jesus has, is, and will always be conquering on our behalf. Of course, on God's behalf first, but also in exchange with us on our behalf too. And so you might be thinking at this point, well, great. If it's the same horse and it's the same rider... Why is he making another entrance into the book of Revelation? In other words, what's the point? Why do we have to understand this? Why do we have to see him then and see him now? What's being communicated to us? If you go back to that preach, and if you watch it again or listen to it or read that text again, you'll remember that when we discover the four horsemen of the apocalypse, I said that the first horseman, which is the rider on the white horse who comes out to conquer and to conquering, represents Jesus Christ at the moment of his ascension when he was taking the gospel message forward. He had done what he needed to do for humanity. He redeems all of us. We are now free. We are able to operate, and he gives us a gift. That gift is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That horse starts to advance, and he's been advancing and he's going to continue advance through his hands and feet on this earth which is all of us but remember it didn't end with the white horse because what came after the white horse it was the red horse of persecution in other words whenever the gospel message is preached we can expect that persecution will follow the gospel some people in this world have died for that privilege and the privilege i'm speaking of is the preaching of the gospel of the lord jesus christ and it is my hope that at the very least every one of us in this room will know what it means to face some sort of persecution for what we believe and so the difference here is this in this text the writer makes his return and it's a reminder to us that no matter how much persecution the world throws at us as as believers no matter how much the enemy wants to conquer the gospel and defeat the lord jesus christ no matter how much he wants to defeat you and i this morning he doesn't win the horse comes back he's still ruling he's still reigning and he's still conquering 
And nothing can stop the forward momentum of the gospel, friends. We need to understand that no legislation, no politician, no government, no industry can stop what God is doing through Jesus Christ because, friends, he is unstoppable. That raises another question. So if Jesus commenced the gospel age in Revelation 7, if that's the beginning of the gospel age, does this particular horse and rider illustrate a picture of the second coming of Jesus? And to answer that question is it all depends how you read the book of Revelation. That's the fact. This is one of those places where some of us might go divergent from each other. It's okay. Keep the stones and the tomatoes till later. I personally don't believe that this is the second coming of Jesus, and there are a few reasons I say this, but one that I will share with you this morning is that none of the second coming of Jesus language is evident in Revelation. What I mean by the second coming language, well, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 52 speaks about the return of Christ as a moment that will happen in the twinkling of an eye. In fact, the way Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 52 is that a twinkling of the eye, God will raise up those who have been born to newness of life, to imperishable, body, imperishable bodies, and those to judgment to be judged. In other words, Jesus comes, judgment happens almost instantaneously, at least according to Paul. Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, he describes his second coming this way. He says, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And we don't see any of that verbiage in this text in Revelation. It's not an unexpected event. It's not a sudden event. In fact, in Revelation, what's clear is that Jesus has been fulfilling a mandate that he's always been fulfilling. His purpose has been to judge the sin of this world, to judge the enemy of this world, and to bring war on them. It began in the seven seals, on the gospel being moved forward, this particular war, and it's something that I believe he will be doing until he does come again, which we'll get to a bit later on. But it reminds us that because Jesus is depicted as a mighty warrior, and the fact that he's called faithful and true, as Ryan said earlier, tells us that we have not been left as orphans on this earth. We are not sitting on an earth with an absentee landlord playing PlayStation or Xbox up in heaven, drinking pina coladas and wondering, oh, I wonder what happened down there today. He is present, friends. He is right here, right now, in our hearts. He is with us every moment of our day, even through our deepest and most severe pain that we go through. He is right here. He has never left us. And when we fight against the temptation of this world, when we fight against the seductions of this world, when we fulfill the great commission that is placed in our heart, we can take known, no, we can take comfort knowing that Jesus is the one leading the charge. And so maybe you're here this morning and you're going through a challenging time. Maybe you're going through one of those desperate moments that all of us at some point in our life will face. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said, but take heart, I've overcome the world, right? This is not a guarantee as a Christian to a peaceful, comfortable life. If you've been told that, I'm sorry to disappoint you. It's not going to happen. But here's the deal. You are not alone. If you feel alone, if you feel abandoned, stop listening to the lies of the enemy. It's time that we start to reclaim the truths that God spoke to us. Faithful tells us that when we are faithless, he is faithful. And so when you don't have faith, he takes his faith and he puts it in you. All you need to do is get on your knees. He tells us that he's true. And so the next time the enemy comes and tells you you're not good enough, you're less than, you're a loser, you're a sinner, God doesn't love you, and all the other myriads of things that the enemy tells him, you can go back to him and say, this scripture tells me that Jesus is not just faithful, but that he's true. That means that I'm precious, that I'm saved, that I'm loved, that I'm protected, and that I am more than a conqueror through Christ who strengthens me. Amen. 
That's what we are called to tell. This is not a fairy tale, friends. This is 100% true. It's the most truest thing that you can probably believe in. I don't even know if truest is a word, but it is today. That's what you need to believe. Verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Second truth, we can be encouraged because while we may not have all the answers about everything that happens in this world and about everything that goes on, Jesus does. You know, I often look around the world and I think to myself, how is it possible that so many people seem to get away with the things they get away with? We all know who those people are. You've got your own ones in your mind. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a family member. Maybe it's a politician. I mean, I know they don't do that very often, but who knows, right? I don't know who it is for you. But people seem to get away with things. The fact that Jesus' eyes are fire tells me that when he sees things, he burns through deception. He burns through pretense. He burns through fake Christianity. If you want to be an authentic believer, this is a great reason to be it because he can see straight through you and me in particular. Sees through all of us. The fact that he wears not one crown, but many crowns, that's what the word diadem refers to, reminds us that every form of injustice on this earth will one day be revealed and judged because guess what? Jesus, not the enemy, is sovereign over every aspect of our life. And the question I want to ask us this morning, and I'm asking myself, is Jesus sovereign in your life? In its totality? Or have we relegated Jesus to certain mornings on a particular day of the week when we decide to put our Jesus hat on and we come to church? That's not the King of Kings, friends. Let me tell you, this Jesus demands everything from us every moment of every day. Now, I know everyone wants to throw stones at me. Good. And I'm speaking to myself. Verse 12 goes on to say this. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. So we've given some names of Jesus in this text. This is one of those names. It's the name that no one knows. Okay, but that's the name. It's pretty weird. It's quite intriguing to me because I want to know what it means. Like, don't tell me I don't know, but I, I can never know, but I do want to know. But there's a reason that Jesus' name is unknown. This particular name. Remember Revelations chapter 6 and verse 2. The scroll is being held in the hands of God the Father. The scroll that contains the purposes and the plans of God. His detailed instructions for the redemption of humanity. And what did it say about that scroll? It said there was nobody found worthy to be open to opening the scroll, right? John starts crying, oh no, what are we going to do? But then Jesus shows up. He is the one that's worthy and he opens the scroll. He can read God's plans and purposes. He can read what needs to be done on this earth. And that's a powerful picture because what it's telling us is while we will never know God's entire plan, it's okay if there are some mysteries in it. And so it's okay when people say to you, why do good things happen to bad people? And why do bad things happen to good people? You can say, I don't know. I honestly don't know. But what I do know is this, because Jesus is faithful and true, I can believe what Paul tells me in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that all things will be worked out together for our good. And so it looks crazy, it looks weird, it looks hard. I don't know why bad stuff happens. I really don't. To the most faithful believers. But I do know this, that everything, everything, not some things, everything will be worked out together for our good. And one day when we are standing in eternity with our God, we will see the plans of God and we will understand it. And we will say, Lord, this was the most perfect plan you could have ever come up with. Praise the Lord. Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and his name by which he is called. And there's another name, the word of God. 
Third truth, we can be encouraged because the word not only fights on our behalf, but fights in our behalf. It's a vivid picture. Jesus is dressed in a robe that's full of blood. Remember how in Revelation 6, Jesus rode out and he was carrying that bow? He wasn't bloody then. The fact that he's bloody now reminds us of a couple of things. Yes, it is a picture of the blood that he shed for his saints, but it is, it is also a blood of the blood of all the enemies he's been conquering. There's a great parallel scripture to this. We don't have time to read it today, but I would encourage you, if it's the only thing you do today, I mean, besides being with your family, that's super cool and stuff. But if there's another thing that you do today, go and read Isaiah 63 from verse 1 to verse 7. It depicts exactly what we're reading in Revelation, except it speaks about the conquering of God's enemy and the treading of the winepress of God's wrath. We'll get to that later. And then we're given another name. The name that we're given is the Word of God. It's the same word that John spoke to us in John chapter 1, verse 1. Do you remember that scripture? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And here's the deal. Because the Word reveals God's divine nature, because God is the Word and the Word is God, right? That's what the text tells us. It tells everyone that the reason Jesus is bloody is we don't just get the nice parts of God that we like. Of God that we like. Unfortunately, when we face the creator God of the universe, there are aspects of his nature that cannot be in the presence of sin, like his holiness and his judgment. John 1.14 puts it this way, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as glory as of the only Son from the Father. And then it says this, Full of grace and truth. You see, we live in a church age where we love grace. It's all about grace. Jesus loves everyone. He died for everyone, right? And so everybody's going to heaven. In fact, even for you as a believer, it doesn't matter what you do in your life anymore because Jesus died for you. And so there's this great hyper-grace theory that says we can live lives of abandoned, reckless sinning, and do whatever we want, but Jesus died and he paid the price. And that's fundamentally true. Jesus did die and pay the price. But guess what? There's an aspect to God that is pretty hard to hear, and it's called the truth. You see, we are called as believers saved at our worst in the very bottom of the barrel. It doesn't matter if you're here today and you're the worst sinner in the world. God loves you. And believe me, Jesus' blood is enough to save you. But we don't stay at the bottom of the barrel. We become sanctified. Our job is to become holy and holy over time. Now, I know you might be thinking like I do sometimes, but how do we even become holy? I mean, I fail at this all the time. Believe me, ask my wife, she'll tell you. I failed, ask my kids, they're even worse. They'll tell you even worse stories. I don't have holiness down to a, to a perfect art. I really don't. But I'm striving for it. And what gives me great courage is First Colossians chapter, I mean First Colossians, Colossians 1 chapter 27, verse 27. Charlie, your precious killing me. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. My favorite piece of scripture, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Just like Jesus, the word is waging warfare with the enemy and the seductions and the Babylons of this world. Well, guess what, friends? He is waging war on our behalf, in our behalf, inside of our hearts. And that tells me the key to holiness is not just picking yourself up by the bootstrap and gritting your teeth and saying, today I'm not going to swear again or cuss. You will fail, my friends. I've tried that. It doesn't work. 
And if you do, you can maybe do it for a day or two and then you're back where you are and then you're like in depression and God, you don't love me anymore and I've failed you. The way we do it is relying on the word that lives inside of me. Jesus in me is the hope of glory. Not Marco is the hope of glory. If I want to become holier, I've got to go to him and say, Lord, do it in me. I can't do it myself. Verse 14. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Fourth truth. Don't worry, we've only got two more. They're very quick. We can be encouraged because Jesus is not alone. He comes with an army. Now, I want to say this to you. Jesus would be enough. We don't need an army, actually. We don't really need anything else, but he's coming with an army. I know we've all seen pictures like this. Put that picture up there. We have this vision in our minds. We think of Jesus riding on the white horse and the armies of, of heaven behind him. We think of this glorious supernatural army, these fierce, crazy aliens. I mean, aliens. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> hey, Listen. Anything that's extraterrestrial is not from this earth. So let me just put it that way. That could be aliens. Anyway, okay, let's just read back. Let me go backtrack. Okay. We look at this crazy picture of Jesus leading the supernatural host of angelic beings. That's the word I was looking for. And we think, yes, it's a powerful picture, especially at the bottom there. You see the Megiddo Valley. There's the Temple Mount, and the whole world is being destroyed by this army. And you know what? This is a powerful picture, right? But you know what the problem with this picture is? Is it so convenient? You know why it's convenient? Because sometimes I think we'll just be waiting on the last days. We'll have our popcorn and our f- slurpees, whatever you call those things. And we'll be just waiting like we're at a UFC fight. Yeah, man. And Jesus is coming. Let's watch the end of the world. I want to tell you that I don't believe that's what this text is communicating to us. Because let me ask you this. What if the armies that were following Jesus are not angelic armies? but are rather made up of every tribe, of every tongue, of every nation, of every age group, of every gender, of every race. What if the armies of heaven are you and I? What if? Super not convenient, bro. I don't like that. I think this army refers to Christians. I think the armies that ride in lockstep with Jesus are the believers. You might be thinking, but this text is saying the armies of heaven. Exactly, not in heaven. They're of heaven. Now, some theologians in the room, I get it, are going to say, but some translations say in heaven. That's fine. Because let me just remind us all what Paul says. Ephesians 2 verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive, what? Together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Not by your own works, not by your good deeds, not by your religiosity, and raised us up with him. We have been raised with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. Friends, we are, not will be, together with Christ. We have, not might be, one day raised up with him. And we are right now, present tense, seated in heavenly places. And if that's true, then unfortunately, as inconvenient as this may sound, we are a part of the armies of God. It's hard to become this type of believer. And it's hard because fighting and living for the kingdom requires some sacrifice. It's hard to become a people that are so heavenly minded that we're a force of good in this world. But again... It is what we've been called to be. We might not be there yet, friends. 
but we've got to strive to get there. 2 Timothy 2 verse 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. I think part of the reason we don't ever become this army is because we're too busy living our lives in the absence of Christ. We get caught up in civilian stuff. We worry about stuff that's temporal here on this earth. And I get it. We all do it. I do it myself. But you know what Paul goes on to say to Timothy? He says, the reason we don't get involved in civilian pursuits is because when we don't, we are actually pleasing the one who enlists us. We're living for the kingdom. Every time we preach the gospel, every time we live for our faith, every time we love somebody who perhaps is unlovable or harder still, every time you forgive somebody that has hurt you, that doesn't deserve forgiveness, we shed these earthly corrupt bodies in exchange for heavenly ones, friends. And when that happens, we please the one who enlisted us. Now, I know that there's people going to run out of here screaming heretic, heresy, this guy's lost his mind. I do believe there are armies in heaven, just to be clear. We were introduced to them in Revelation 12. Archangel Michael and all the heavenly foes cast Satan out from heaven to this earth. I believe they're there. I just believe this text refers to us. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That Isaiah picture I told you to read will really bring that imagery home. But last truth, and I'm closing it, the band can come up. We can be encouraged this morning because justice is coming. You see, throughout the book of Revelation, we've encountered a persecuted church. Right? We've heard about it. We've seen it in the seven churches. We saw it through the blood that was shed at the altar. The martyrs crying out to God for vindication. Lord, how long will it be till you return? How long until we see the vindication for all the wrongs and the hardships that we've had to endure? Well, guess what? Justice is on his way. And this vindication, this justice, I want to be clear with this, is not as a result of a military kinetic war, friends. Because the text tells us this justice comes through the result of the sharp word of God. It's the word that precedes the mouth of the Lord. Hebrews describes this word in this way. Hebrews 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide, uh, piercing, sorry, to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and the discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account. The point that, being, that is being made, friends, is that Jesus is now reintroducing the rule of God. It's coming back to this earth. And guess what, friends? I know this is going to shock some of us, but the rule of God does not come through politicians. It doesn't come through social justice organizations. It doesn't come through corporate entities. It doesn't come through wealth, through finances, through money. It doesn't come through any one of us in this room. It comes through the gospel being preached. And yes, we're a part of that when we preach the gospel. But if you want change in this world, if you want unity in this world, if you want people to be loved the way they should be loved, if you want to sort this gender crisis out, what do we need to do? We need to preach the gospel. We need to preach Jesus crucified, raised on the third day, resurrected to heaven. Why? Because He loves you and He died for your sin. That means you need to repent, turn away from your sins, come back to Jesus. When we do that, this world will be united. It will be utopia. And that's what we'll be doing for the rest of eternity. That's why there's a new heaven and a new earth. A place where the gospel is not just preached, but it is there. It's real to us, friends. And we do this, not someday, 
Because right now, the text tells us who Jesus is. It says this in verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords, friends. We've been given four names of Jesus, faithful and true. One name that we don't know, the word of God. And now this one, King of kings and Lord of lords. All of them encourage us. Why? Because they remind us of something important. You see, through the whole era of Christian history, through the gospel age, past, present, and whatever's to come, with all of its persecution, with all of its wars, with all of its disasters, with all of its suffering, never forget that the rider on the white horse has been with his people all along. He's never been absent. In fact, if we, learn, if we look back over the epoch of time, and we have the privilege of doing that 2,000 years removed from the cross. What we will realize as we interpret the steps of history, we can survey the entire span of time. And what we will find contained in this era is, is confidence. Why? Because He is and will always be a faithful God. It reminds us that history is moving purposefully, even if sometimes painfully forward. But it's going to a definite conclusion, friends. And this is the conclusion, the day when no one can doubt that our Lord is the supreme Lord over the universe. And today, not someday, we can declare that Jesus is the conquering king, the righteous judge, the captain of the armies of heaven. And it's with that revelation, friends, and that simple statement on this wall, to know Christ and to make him known, that we can change the world. Because he deserves the glory. His name, friends, is King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. He wants it all from us. And so if there's stuff that we're holding on to, friends, can I encourage us this morning? Not condemn us, but encourage us to start saying, Lord, I'm struggling to let go of these things. Please help me do what only you can do in me. Can I ask you to stand? I want to pray for us.